Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Show. I'm your host today, Bill Bannum. And in this episode, I'm going to talk with Matt Petzl, PhD, about how to attract and manage a high-performing team. Matt is the, get this listeners, the godfather of talent optimization and the vice president of partner growth at the Predictive Index, the leading talent optimization platform. He has served in product and partner empowerment roles at the Predictive Index for the past seven years. Uh, He holds that PhD in psychology from Capella University and is a US Marine and Ironman triathlon finisher. Wow, this, this, this is a proper fit human being and he's going to put me to shame, I'm sure. Um, Matt, it's my pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I've got to start there, I think, haven't I? So former US Marine, um, an Ironman tri- triathlon finisher. What gives you the drive? Where did that come from in your life to, to, to give you that kind of dedication to, to do things like that? I've always been really goal oriented. I don't know when it really started, but I've decided just to con- continuously push myself. Uh, to achieve these these goals. And the PhD was probably the most difficult thing I've ever done mentally. And uh, it really was born of that interest in learning all about leadership and coaching and, and how to help people have better work experiences. All the other stuff like Ironman was really what I want to do in my spare time to make me better at work. This podcast is supported by Fidelo Inc., a consulting firm specializing in improving human performance. Through their products and services, Fidelo helps clients design, develop, and implement strategic integrated human resource processes and systems. Learn more at fidelo.com. That's F-I-D-E-L-L-O.com. Now then, let's, um, let's get to know you a bit, Matt. For, for those listeners out there who haven't heard of you before, um, let, let's get to know you a bit. On your LinkedIn profile, you write, it wasn't long ago that I lacked the confidence, know-how and skills to lead others in authentic and powerful ways. Tell me a bit about your your varied career background then, beyond what you've just mentioned there, and, and, and also your journey as a leader. Sure, Bill. I, as you mentioned in the opening, you know, my first real adult job was in the U.S. Marine Corps. And so I figured when I got to the Marines and we learned all about leadership and excellence and professional development. That's just how adults went about their work. And uh, what I came to find as a civilian was that that's not the case at all. And in fact, it was a lot on on you as an individual uh, worker to really educate yourself. And so I went about that and I figured I had to learn all about the business because I was making that transition from military life. And so I poured over all the technical aspects of my job as a product professional, but I really missed out on the people part. And that's what led me to write that that bit about uh, not having the the know-how or the skills and, and really lacking the confidence. So I got my first software job, as I mentioned, and I started to make a mess of things, you know, really trying to focus on the technical aspects, but I forgot to be human at work. And I had some of those really human experiences with the team members that were maybe a little bit frustrated with the way I was working with them. And in one terrible time that I, I had to fire somebody who I had made a hiring mistake. And that was really devastating to me. So I committed myself to learning the people part as well, that part of my craft. And over time and over experience, I really discovered three pillars, as I call them, of of leadership, all about self-mastery, working hard to improve yourself, inspiring others, how you make connections authentically with other people, and then delivering results because ours is a bottom line business. So I'm happy that I made the transition to become a respected leader. And now it's my mission to help other aspiring leaders do the same. 
Why does your team claim that uh, once you start practicing talent optimization, you'll never go back to the old ways of leading? Yeah, talent optimization itself is a term. It sounds like an HR thing, but that goes back to the same trap that I fell into. The reality is that leaders and, and talent optimization itself is a leadership framework. Leaders have to get good at the people part, and they need to rely on strong HR business partners who are really critical to their business success. But at the same time, they have to take accountability to get good at the people part, right? HR leaders can't do my setups for me. As a business leader, I have to, I have to do that on my own. So the best way to think about talent optimization and why you wouldn't want to go back to the old way of leading is to think about what happens when we don't take a talent optimization approach. There's three things that I commonly see. One is missed targets. So if you think about a dashboard that's red or yellow when you wish it were green, that's evidence that talent optimization is not happening somewhere in the business. The other is strategy risk. When you think about something that needs to happen 12, 15, 18 months from now, and I'm worried that it's not going to take place the way I want it to, that's a, a gap as well. And then finally, the last one being the people tax. When you think about the miscommunication, frustration, people that, that might resign on you, those types of things, that's a real challenge. So talent optimization really demystifies the people part that contributes to all those devastating business problems. When we talk all about how do we design winning teams, hire top talent, inspiring people to greatness and diagnosing the people problems that affect the business, once you learn as a leader how to make those things go away, you don't wanna go back to the old way of leading because that's, that's what gets uh, people in trouble. Okay, so seems pretty logical to me. Um, in your opinion, then, how can how can managers help their employees be more accountable? At and and of course, you do have this varied and very interesting background, and uh, I'm sure accountability looks very different if you're in the Marines than it does in a corporate environment. But you know, generally speaking, what what are some of those best practices? Yeah, that's true. It's it's a little bit more straightforward, but the situations that you find yourself in are are just as complex and and volatile uh, in, the, in the civilian world. So I think it was a really good uh, tr uh, proving ground, if you will, and it really translated uh, pretty well to, to my civilian life. But you know, when it comes to accountability, it's not easy. I think that you know, we talk about how can a manager help an employee? Well, it depends on the manager and it depends on the employee. My best advice is to learn to let go, but do so gradually. And by that, I mean, you have to let go of your intense interest as a leader to make the decisions and exercise authority you have to learn to share some of that responsibility with the accountable party. And so I like to do that by creating safety, as I call it, psychological safety. I want to make sure that I can start small. I want to help my employees expand their comfort zone over time. And I even allow them to and encourage them to task me, like treat me as a team member. What can I do to help you with this thing that you own? And that really drives up accountability. And, and the mindset you have to take, and this is really challenging for some leaders, is you have to not only embrace, but even facilitate your own obsolescence. And by that, I mean, you're not always gonna be in the role you're in, you want the next role. Well, if I'm gonna take on a new role, I've gotta make sure my old responsibilities can be absorbed by the team. Otherwise, I'm gonna be stuck doing my current job all the time. And they don't want that, they wanna take the next level. They want my job, and I don't want that. I wanna change what I'm working on too. So we have to help leaders develop accountable employees. And a lot of times I like to ask the question, What's the, list, the, the last major decision you allowed your team member to make or the last major action they owned 100% of? And if you don't have a good answer for that as a leader, it's time to start exercising more accountability for your team members. Okay, so um, one thing that really got me excited there in the answer 
was uh, uh, how you've, you've had situations, you, you've facilitated situations where you're essentially acting as a team member and other team members can keep can hold you accountable. Uh, for those team members who are not terrified to do so because you're you're their you're their senior, um, what, what what's that look like? Um, how, how's it how's it worked out? Can you maybe share an example of a, of a project where that's happened and it's worked out well? Yeah, absolutely. So one example is uh, it, it helps me because I like to take a coaching approach, and all that means is that when you when you're a, a supervisor or manager, sometimes you're directive and you bark out the orders, and and that's a fast way to get things done in the short term, but it really doesn't build capabilities in the long term. Coaches tend to take more of a facilitator or a co-pilot approach. They ask a lot of questions. They invite a lot of exploration. So because I take a coaching approach as often as a directive one, it makes it easier for me to take on that role of team member and not just always be the supervisor. I'm working on a project right now to help redesign the uh, certification programs that we have for talent optimization. So even though I'm a more senior team member, I'm working for somebody who's an instructional designer and an awesome subject matter expert on our learning team. And it's very easy for me to take on that role because of the investments that I've made. I'm very comfortable in my leadership in the company and my, my own capabilities, but I don't want to own that program because that's not my job, you know, but it is my job to be helpful. So I think by taking that coaching approach, by using humor or accessibility, relatability, whatever tool you have in your toolkit, you can really defer and, and be deferential when it comes to your authority and still be a contributing team member if you do it the right way. And then they grow as a result. You get to still contribute and, and get your fingerprints on it a little bit, but uh, everybody wins in that case. If you always have to be in charge all the time, you're not gonna be in charge of much. What a great example. I've actually, I've, I've lived that from the from the other side, um, uh, developing out a, a, a new competency framework for, for a learning and development initiative. And I was super lucky uh, that the, the CEO of that company um, who I had to go to because they, they understood the business. They understood where they wanted to develop some of the learnings for, it was a member organization. Um, so, you know, they were su super fundamental to, to that journey. Uh, they were wonderful to work with. And um, they also took a similar sort of approach to, to what I think you do. So that's just my personal experience, listeners. But this is not about me. So let's uh, let's keep asking Matt the questions. Um, Matt, maybe you can now share some some tips for for leaders who are looking to better communicate with their teams in person, but also remotely. What, what are those, What are those differences, really, in terms of effective communication um, that that we that we now um, live through, where it's hybrid? You know, it's some people working from home, some people back in the office. Finally, uh, which is great to see. Um, are, are, there, are there different skill sets to be able to communicate? remotely versus in person? I think there's some universals that are really important, uh, no matter what type of communication we're talking about, but there are absolutely differences. When it comes to in-person versus remote, you know, we, we had a situation where, especially within the world of knowledge work, anybody we could send home to be safe, we did. And so we kind of translated this in-person predominantly communication and interaction to remote predominantly, and, and everyone was on a level playing field. Now that we've returned to hybrid work where some people have come back to the office, some have not, some may never come back. You know, I call hybrid work the most dangerous format of work we've seen yet. And the reason is because of a lack of equity. When you're a leader and you've got five in the room and five on the Zoom, that is a challenging format to communicate. How do you ensure equity when you're doing a brainstorming session? How do you make sure that you don't show favoritism one way or the other? How do you make sure everyone has an opportunity, respective of their personality type, to contribute in the way that they're most comfortable? You know, where they choose to work is a personal choice, not a personality choice. So I have to make sure I have 
an opportunity for everyone to contribute on the team the way that they want to. So I feel like there's a different skill set in managing the technology and not letting it become barrier and drive a wedge between us. But at the same time, there are some common principles uh, when it comes to effective communication that, that transcend the technology. Why is it important after you pull together the right candidates, Matt, to, to keep a pulse on employee engagement, uh, to maybe nip problems in, in the bud, some ongoing feedback and, and things like engagement surveys? So when we talk about talent optimization, what is it that we're really seeking to optimize? It's two things. One is employee performance. That's pretty obvious, but also employee experience. And the reason is because if we get great performance from our employees, but they have a lousy experience at work, they're not going to stick around. In this job environment in particular, they're going to make a decision with their feet and they're going to go somewhere else. So if I want to make sure that I'm getting the highest levels of performance and experience within the context of the mission, I can't make assumptions when it comes to what type of experience that they're having. When you know it comes to an experience, if they're not having a positive experience, they're going to surprise me potentially by either uh, letting me know too late or potentially walking out the door. So in terms of that, that's why it's really important to keep that pulse, as you mentioned, by taking objective measures of employee engagement, really processing those results objectively, being open to those differences of experience. And there's a three-level sort of methodology I like to use. I call it awareness, insight, and action. If I create awareness by collecting the data, I can then process it to glean the insights. Maybe I find that team members who are on one project are having a, a lesser experience than those who are working on a different project. Well, now I can take action. I can create what I call a surgical response. I know that my team members aren't all having an even experience, so I don't need to treat the problem universally. I can give people what they need. Maybe they have a lack of role clarity, or maybe they're having a frustration with communication style or format. I don't have to treat everyone the same. So if I don't have the measures, then I don't know what to do. I'm just playing guessing games. So that's why it's really important to measure employee engagement, process those results as objectively as possible, and take action in very specific ways to address very specific problems. That's the way to get the employee performance and the experience that we're looking for. Perfect, and I, I think that was Matt's uh, ten-minute warning there. So I'll, I'll keep I'll keep it brief, Matt. I promise. <laughs> now then, as as prep for for this interview today, I, I shared a I shared a link with you to um, a blog post on, on on your site, and it's it's not written by you. It's written by a chap called uh, Andrew Box, who's one of the editors over at PI. Um, but I just thought it was such a great post that I wanted you to to have a look at it uh, ahead of time and, and maybe talk to our listeners a bit about it. Um, and the post the post is called Dysfunctional Teams, the Five Characteristics, right? That's, that sounds meaty. Um, Matt, can you can you take a few minutes now, a couple of minutes now, and, and walk me through those five characteristics? Yeah, that was a, an example that we had contributed that was based on Patrick Lencioni's book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And he really does a great job in talking about the problems that plague teams. And we took our spin and kind of extended that work to talk about sort of our own experiences when it comes to you know, the, the behavior of people in organizations and within the mission context, et cetera. So he starts off by talking about the first dysfunction, which is an absence of trust. And when, when I find that trust is absent in team settings where there's a lack of safety and a lack of consistency, If you think about it, if we don't have a culture on our team where it's okay to make mistakes, or if we can't really truly be our authentic selves without being judged for it, that is not a safe environment and that's going to erode trust. 
if sometimes we can do that and sometimes we can't, that inconsistency, that also erodes trust. So we need to create safety for our team members. It can be okay to make mistakes in certain situations and we wanna constantly be, be super consistent when it comes to our interactions, our expectations, our rewards, our punishments, whatever it might be. Those are things that create trust over the long term. The second example of a dysfunction was a fear of conflict. What I find in teams is that if we're gonna have high stakes, we need to have high empathy. And all that means is that if I'm looking for a really aggressive goal, there's a big objective, there's a lot riding on this, the more that's true, the more I need to be empathetic that people aren't always gonna be at their best. You can't have really high stakes, like if you think about sports analogies and military analogies and big business, et cetera, high stakes, you're gonna to have to have high empathy. Realize that people are going to be going through some things, they're processing emotions, they're doing it in a very volatile environment, a very high pressure environment. You got to make sure we understand that and bring that healthy fear of conflict that that's okay. It's expected. It's necessary. The third one is around a lack of commitment. If team members aren't committed, then we're not going to get the team performance and the team experience that I talked about a little bit earlier. For me, this is all about being mission driven. We have to be really clear about the why and the purpose behind what we're trying to accomplish together as a team. And that's going to really endorse and create more of that commitment. If people aren't attached to the mission, they shouldn't be on the team. Let's be honest. Uh, there's got to be high levels of, of identifying with the mission and really wanting to fulfill that purpose. That's going to drive up commitment and that's going to lead to team performance. The next one is an avoidance of accountability. So in this case, uh, we talked about a little bit earlier, not being accountable. I find this often in teams that have a lack of role clarity. If it's not clear that am I responsible for this? Am I just is this not my call to make? That's an issue. And then an overall lack of professionalism. You know, the reality is we need people to be accountable for producing results, for fulfilling their own career evolution. You know, we need grownups at work and we need to make sure that all the, that is in place. And then the last one is an inattention to results. So I said earlier that we run a bottom line business and that's always going to be true. We have to measure the outcomes if we want to optimize them. We have to make sure that the results are, are something that we've identified before taking an action. What do we expect to see? And then as the action's being taken and even afterward, are, did we get the results we were looking for? That's just the most empirical and objective way to run a business. And so we have to pay attention to those results and not just go completely by gut. So those were the five examples that Patrick Lencioni had, had referenced. And then in our experience with behavioral science and organizational dynamics, we tried to extend that a little bit, and, and that was me sharing some of my own personal experiences as well. Awesome. And one last thing I would like you to share today, Matt, uh, before we do have to wrap up, sadly, this time, but I'd love to get you on again in the future for sure, is um, can, can you share how our listeners can connect with you? So, uh, for example, I, I, I reached out to you on LinkedIn, and you were kind enough to, to respond. And also, how can they learn more about Predictive Index? Yeah, if you've been interested in talent optimization, it's a wonderful framework to really demystify the people process. There's great content from all around the world of work available at predictiveindex.com. And as you mentioned, Bill, for me personally, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, uh, very easy to find on LinkedIn. And also, you know, if you have a special interest in leadership and, and what it means to lead at the next level, I created a starter kit you're welcome to check out too at mattpepsel.com start. Uh, those are all great resources and great ways to really uh, get the, the people part of business right. And I'm sure we'll chuck some of those links in the show notes as well, listeners. Uh, well, that just leaves me to say for today then, Matt, thank you so much for being my guest on this episode of the HR Chat Show. Awesome, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. 
Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette.